<clears throat> Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But... Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is God's inerrant inspired, infallible, holy word. Now we've been looking the last really few weeks at the unity that Christ has formed in the church. And we specifically talked about unity last week, but it's been going on ever since he's been uh, teaching us about this uh, new uh, union between Jews and Gentiles, even beginning back in chapter 2. How that in, in those groups specifically, Jews and Gentiles, the middle wall of separation has been torn down. The law of Moses no longer stands between those two groups of people. So that now all are made one in Christ. There's no longer Jew and Gentile, but there is one man, one body, one church. And then last week, he got very particular in that, how we conduct ourselves in the unity that we have in the church with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then that great declaration, that uh, probably one of those first confessions of faith in the church, there in verse 4 through 6, he said, There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And I think the point is pretty clear, if you'll just look at the text, that there is a unity, there is a oneness in the body of Christ. And right on the heels of this teaching about oneness and about unity, he throws a conjunction at us. And what's the first word of verse 7? But. So we're making a, a contrast here. We're showing a different side of things, beginning in verse 7. On the heels of this, this teaching on unity, he transitions with this conjunction to teach us that Christ has given gifts of grace to each Christian. 
He says to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So on the one hand, we are united. We have union with Christ and we have union in Christ. We are one body and there's nothing in the world that can change that. And at the same time, we have this unity in our diversity of gifts. Now it would be really hard if we all came in here on Sunday morning and everyone wanted to preach. That would be a very confusing kind of service. It would probably be annoying and we'd get on each other's nerves and leave in a fight. We all don't do the same jobs. We don't have all the same giftings, but we all in our union with Christ exercise our diversity of gifts because Christ has given to each one, each one, he says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's a gift of grace. In verse 8 through 10, he, he sort of throws in this parenthetical comment about where this came from. He said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Well, that's a little bit confusing. He goes on, he says, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He's simply telling us how and when Christ gave us these gifts. You were given this gift when you were saved from captivity of, to sin and to Satan. Now, in, in this time when this was written, kings would go into battle, and often if they had people who, were already, who had been cap, captured by the enemy, when they would win in battle and defeat their enemy, they would, as they would say, capture the captives. Those who had been captured by the enemy, their king would come and capture them back. And lead them in a grand parade through the city back into their hometown. And that's what he's talking about here. Jesus came while we were held captive to sin and to Satan. Jesus came and defeated sin, death, and Satan in his death on the cross. He came and lived the sinless life that none of us could ever live. Laid down his life willingly, taking on himself the punishment for sin making payment for our sin before God, being buried, rising from the dead, defeating death, and then ascending back to His Father. And in doing that, He has led captivity captive. We who once were captive to sin have been set free. But He says, when He ascended on high, when He went back to the Father, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So when you were saved, when you were delivered from captivity to sin, captivity to Satan, and when you received the Holy Spirit at your conversion, God gave you a gift. He did. You say, well, I don't remember that. Well, you might not. You might not have discovered yet what that is. You may not be using your gift. But God gave each and every one of us a gift by the Holy Spirit when we were born again. Now, here in Ephesians, he gives a very specific few of those gifts. There are different lists uh, in the New Testament and in Paul's writings where he names off some gifts of the Holy Spirit. But here he specifically refers to these in verse 11. He says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, the apostles were those who had seen the risen Lord, who were sent by Him personally to preach the gospel, to lay the foundation of the church. They were given the Word of God. They wrote it down for us, and they've all died and they're gone. 
And personally, I've never met any prophets either. We've known some that have put, carried that name for themselves. You see people on billboards or on TV, you know, and they'll put apostle or they'll put prophet in front of their name. But none of them ever have met the qualifications of the biblical prophets, those who have 100% accuracy, because you know what they did to the ones who missed it on a prophecy? They stoned them. I don't see people doing that in America with these so-called prophets. But none of them meet the biblical qualifications of that. And so if you take apostles and prophets aside, really the, the main ones that apply even in our own day are evangelists and pastors and teachers. Evangelists are those who go forth and proclaim the good news. And there are people, praise God, that have a special gift in sharing the gospel. They proclaim it with clarity and with power. And people hear and believe and are saved. And we'll talk about this in just a minute. That doesn't accept anyone from doing the work of an evangelist just because you may not have a particular gifting for it. But he's given some evangelists, and he says, and some pastors and teachers. And those, most scholars would agree, just equate the same office. It is the job of a pastor to be a teacher. If a pastor isn't teaching, he's not really being a pastor. And so these are some of the gifts that Paul names that have been given to the church. But these gifts, and all other gifts for that matter, function to, here's a word for you, write this down, edify the body of Christ, the church. Edify, what does that mean? He uses it there in verse 12. He says, for the equipping of saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Down in verse 16, he uses it again. He says, at the end of the verse, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's a good word to remember because it just simply means to build up. To build up the body of Christ. And every gift that God has given to the church, whether it be these that's listed in Ephesians 4 or any other gift that God has given to Christians, all of them function for the same purpose, and that is to edify, to build up the body of Christ. That's what gifts are to be used for. It's not to build up one individual, to build a ministry or a name for oneself, but it is to edify the congregation of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we work our way through this passage, we can... Answer this question, how does Christ use the gifts that he's given his people to build up his body, the church? If each individual has a gift given by God, how does God use you as an individual with your gifts to build up the body as a whole, the church? Let me give you four things here, four headings. The first is this, equipping them for ministry. Equipping them for ministry. Verse 12 there, he says just that, that he gave these to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. It's important to know that the work of the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers isn't to do all the ministry themselves. It was never intended that way because if it was the work of the apostles to do all the work of the ministry, well, they're dead. If it's the work of the evangelists to do all the work of ministry and to do all the evangelizing, boy, the gospel's not going to get to everybody. If it's the work of the, the pastors and teachers to do all the pastoring and all the teaching, people are going to fall through the cracks. 
That's not what gave, God gave these gifts to the church for. He gave these gifts to the church to equip the saints. Now, who are the saints? Have you been born again? Are you a Christian? Do you have the Holy Spirit? In case you didn't know, I just want to let you know right now, I don't care what you talked to your wife like this morning or how you treated your kids, you are a saint. In God's eyes. Listen, y'all read the book of 1 Corinthians? Those people were messed up. You think churches in America have problems. Those guys had problems. But the very beginning of the letter, Paul calls them what? Saints. Not because of anything you've done, not because of how great you are, but because of who you are in Christ, you are saints. Go home and tell somebody that. The preacher told me this morning that I personally am a saint. And you are, if you are his. And so God gave these gifts to the churches. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and all other gifts to the churches. Not so that those who were gifted could do all the work, but so that those who were gifted could equip the saints for the work of ministry. I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. How many ministers ought a church to have? A church ought to have as many ministers as it has members. Every member is a minister. And God has called those with, with particular gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now listen, when we're all using our gifts in Christ's strength, as every single one of us are using our gifts that God has given us, we will be sharpening and strengthening the gifts of other Christians around us. Your gift might be different than somebody else's, but if you're both using your gifts, you're going to strengthen each other in your own individual gifts. And so, a simple application is this. Use your gifts. Do you know how God has equipped you to serve the church? Do you know what particular skill sets He's given you? What calling He's placed on your life? Friend, if you do, use it. Use it. Depending on the strength of Christ and the Holy Spirit within you, use it. And use it. To strengthen and sharpen and equip other people in the congregation too. Now listen, some of y'all have been serving the church for a long time. Some of you have been serving the church longer than I've existed. And I praise God for your faithfulness over the years. But who's going to do what you do when you're gone? Now, that doesn't mean you say, well, I'm not going to do this job anymore so that somebody else will have to step in and learn how to do it. That's not the way. But while you're still actively involved in ministry, while God gives you strength, why don't you find somebody that you can take alongside you and teach them and equip them for the work of ministry and work together, sharpening each other. And guess what? You'll find out you won't just sharpen them, but you'll find out that they've got gifts too and they'll be sharpening you. Paul gave commands. He says, you older men, teach the younger men. You older women, teach the younger women. So I want you to stop right now and think. Do you have a name in your mind? Is there someone that you have a relationship with right now that you're passing on what you know to? And if the answer is no, you don't, then my question is, who will it be? 
That's where we need to pray and ask the Lord to show us who we can be investing ourselves and our time and our knowledge into to equip others for the work of ministry. Now, on the other side of that, you learn and strengthen your own gifts by being around and serving with those who are using theirs as well. Now, listen, if, if you would like to learn and to grow, don't wait around for somebody to come along and say, can I teach you? Because they might not. But if you're at a point where you want to grow and you want to learn and you want to become better equipped to serve the church, find somebody who's already doing it well and ask them if you can hang out with them. Spend time with them. Learn, watch, and serve right alongside to sharpen and strengthen your own gifts. That's what God's called us to do. How, how does Christ use the gifts that he's given the church to build it up? Well, he equips the saints for the work of ministry. Second thing is this, maturing them in the knowledge of Christ. Maturing them in the knowledge of Christ. He says there in verse 13, he says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says when we come to the unity of the faith, he's, he's talking about attaining a goal. When we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of Christ. Unity and edification, unity and the church being built up will be attained when it is centered on the knowledge of the Son of God. Maturity happens, and that's exactly what he means there when he says a perfect man. That's just an old way of saying mature, complete. Maturity happens when we're full of Christ. Jesus I told his disciples this. Well, he actually prayed this and they were listening. And we know that Jesus came to give us eternal life, right? But what is eternal life? He says this in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is eternal life really? Well, it can't just be quantity of days because everybody's going to live forever. Some people have eternal life in hell. So eternal life can't just mean how long we're going to exist because we're all eternal. But eternal life that is brought through the salvation that Jesus Christ gives is not simply to live forever, but it is to know God and Christ. That's eternal life. Knowing God. Not knowing simply about God, putting the information and the, and the facts in your mind that you picked up in Sunday school... But knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, that is eternal life. That's what Jesus died to give you, a relationship. Take note of Paul's prayers that he's already prayed in this letter. Just, just flip back to chapter 1, verse 15. He said, After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Here's what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who, toward us who believe. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is that God may give us a spirit of revelation and wisdom so that we may know Christ. 
He prays again in chapter 3. We saw it just a couple of weeks ago. Verse 16, he prays this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We are to pray. We are to seek the Lord. We are to come to His Word. We are to serve one another in the church that we may know God. Do you want a church full of mature Christians? Then we must know Christ. Do you want a church that has unity? Then we must all be knowing and helping each other know Christ. Not just in the factual knowledge again, but by experience. That God may enlighten our eyes, that we may comprehend with all the saints the height and length and width and breadth. That we may know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do in us. It's something that the Spirit works in us through other Christians. And through His Word. Friends, let me ask you this. Are you putting yourself in the position in life where you can grow in your knowledge of Christ? I mean, foundationally, the most basic way is just to come to church on Sundays faithfully. Are you doing that? Is that a priority for you? Because coming to church on Sunday doesn't make you a mature Christian, but you can't really be a mature Christian without being obedient and gathering with the church. Are you connected to a, a Sunday school class or a, a small group for discipleship? Are there other people who hold you accountable to make sure you're reading the Bible during the week and you're praying and you're walking with the Lord and who can sharpen you on a much closer level than I can from this pulpit? Do you have Christian relationships where you're honing each other's skills, where you're helping each other to walk with Christ? Friends, we need that. You need that in your life. Do you have an intentional plan for personal Bible study and prayer at home? And I say an intentional plan because if you don't have an intentional plan, you're going to get up for two or three days and thumb around in your Bible and, and find something to read. And after a few days of that, you'll get bored and you'll quit. Do you have an intentional plan for making sure that every day you spend time with God in His Word and in prayer? Let me ask you this. Does your knowledge of Christ lead to a fullness of Christ? That's what he said there in verse, 14, verse 13. We want to mature and we want to grow and we want to know Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What I mean by that is maturity through the experience of a relationship with Him. Reading your Bible alone will not give you an experience of Christ. Coming to church alone will not give you an experience in a relationship with Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can do that in you. You might read your Bible, you might check the box and say, yep, I did that today. You might show up to Sunday school and check the box and say, yep, I did that. I'm meeting all the requirements of a good, faithful Christian. 
But does your knowledge of Christ lead to a fullness of Christ in your life? Are you maturing in your experienced relationship with Him? Because that's what He desires, and it's what you need. So maturing them in the knowledge of Christ. The third thing is this, guarding against false teaching. Guarding them against false teaching. In verse 14, he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Being a child in God's family, in the way that Paul used the word children here, has nearly nothing to do with age. Do you know that? Being considered a child in this sense has nearly nothing to do with age, but it has to do with how established one is in, as verse 13 says, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Because you can have people who have been Christians for a long time, a long time, who are still immature in their experience of Christ, who are still children in their knowledge of the Word of God. And you can have people that maybe haven't been Christians long at all, but boy, they are just hungry for the Word. They can't get enough prayer time. And they're growing like crazy in the knowledge of Christ. So it doesn't have anything to do with age. It has to do with how established are you in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. See, we must use our gifts to hold one another steady. False teaching comes along, and just like waves in the ocean, they just come back and forth, to and fro, causing all kinds of chaos. But we use our gifts in the church, the ways that God has taught us and equipped us to help hold others steady when false teaching comes along. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, he said, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Friends, the gospel is not complicated. The truth is actually, most of the time, very simple. It's simple enough that we can come to the Word of God and the Spirit can teach us. He wrote this in 2 Timothy 3. He said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, holy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we all look at that and say, oh, that's the world we live in. It's bad. Verse 5, this might be the worst thing. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the world that we live in. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We live in probably the most educated day that's ever been in the history of the world. We know more stuff than any people before us, academically. But we miss the simple truths of the gospel. The God of this age has blinded their eyes. There's a veil that 
covers the gospel so that they can't see it. And it's so easy for that kind of stuff out there, those things that are vague, those things that confuse the gospel, to slip into homes and to slip into churches. And it comes in so quietly, so subtly, that you might not catch it. He says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He comes in, false teaching comes in, and it actually looks like it's something really good for a bit. Yeah, we might could get on board with that. But it deters us from the simplicity of the gospel, from what is true. And so we must be steady. We must be sure to use our gifts to keep each other on track with what is true. In Acts 20, Paul was actually addressing the pastors in Ephesus, the people he's writing this letter to here. And he said this, he said, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In Ephesians 4, he's specifically talking to evangelists and pastors and teachers. And Paul addressed the pastors in Ephesus just that. He said, you have to keep watch for the flock and preach the truth. Friends, that's why I've got nothing to say other than what this book says. Because this is what you need. This, this is your guardrail to keep us on the path that God has set before us. I was talking to somebody just this morning. I really, I talk about this frequently, but just this morning it came up. The, the bl blessing and the benefit of consecutive exposition. That is, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, and just working your way through books of the Bible. We let God set the agenda for what we're going to talk about here on Sunday. And guess what? He always gives us exactly what we need when we need it. We must have the Word of God, and we need pastors and preachers and teachers who are faithful to say what the Bible says, no matter what's going on around you. See, here's the thing. No matter what happens this week, no matter what circumstances come up in my life personally or in the life of this church, next week when we get here on Sunday, I'm going to say, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. You don't have to worry about political rants. You don't have to worry about opinions. You don't have to worry about all this stuff because God's Word is our guide. God's Word are the guardrails on the road to keep us following God's path. We're just going to say what the Bible says and that will help protect us, defend us against false teaching. The best way to defend against the lie is simply to tell the truth. And so we're going to keep telling the truth here. And you teachers, you keep telling the truth in your classrooms. You discipleship group leaders, you keep telling the truth in your groups. You use the gifts God has given you to defend the, the ones who may be easily swayed and easy, easily carried about by every wind of doctrine. By grounding them in the Word of God. That's what we have to have. That's what we need. And then the fourth thing is this, growing them with loving words of truth. Growing them with loving words of truth. He says this in verse 15. In contrast to being children tossed about, he says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things 
into him who is the head, Christ. Rather than remaining children, we should be growing up. All of us, no matter how long we've been Christians, should be continually growing up into Christ. Growth is a sign of health. I mean, if you see a kid and the kid doesn't grow, that's a problem. That's why every time you go to the doctor, they weigh them, right? Especially those early days and weeks and months. Got to keep a check. Make sure we're growing at a healthy rate. And friends, that's how your life with the Lord is. If you're not growing, that's not healthy. We all must be on a path of growth, but we help each other grow by what? What does he say here? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Now, this stands against indifference and apathy because it's really easy to see somebody heading down a wrong path or to do something that's not in accordance with God's word and to say, oh, well, you know, they'll get straightened out. God will take care of them and then go on like, and turn a blind eye to it. That's wrong. That's not what he says. But we also have to be sure that both truth and love, love and truth, are present. You have to have both. Because if you say, well, I'm going to go tell them the truth, but you don't have love, you know what you're going to do? You might have a Bible and you might be saying the right things, but you're going to beat them over the head until they're bruised and bloody. And if you say, well, I'm just going to love on them, I'm just going to love on them and let God handle the truth, you know what you're going to do? You're going to love people all the way to hell. Because they'll never hear the word and be saved. They'll never be turned back onto God's right path if they're strayed. You have to have both. You have to come along with the truth and say, I'm going to say what's true no matter what, no matter whether you like it or don't, no matter how people are going to respond, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to say it with every bit of love I can muster. Every bit of love God can produce in me. We have to have both truth and love. Now, some people will say, well, I don't feel like it's my place to, to, to correct anybody or to, you know, to tell them what the Bible says. I just don't really feel like I'm equipped for that. Friends, you've got to go read the book of Matthew sometimes. Matthew 7 usually is the place people go for that. And they say, oh, he says, judge not, lest you be judged. But it's in that very passage that he goes on to say that you should, before you go to take the speck out of your brother's eye, you take care of the beam in your own eye. He doesn't say, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. He says, no, take care of the beam in your own eye first and then go out and help your brother get the speck that's in his own eye. We have a responsibility to one another, friends, to tell the truth and to tell it in love, to make sure our own lives are clean, to make sure our standing with God is right. And then, up from our knees, we go to help our brothers and sisters by telling them the truth in love. Marty read it just this morning at the beginning of the service, Matthew 18. He said, if your brother's in a fault, what do you do? Go and tell everybody your brother's in a fault. No. He said, if your brother's in a fault, you go and talk to your brother. And you settle it between you and him alone. And you've gained your brother. That's what God expects us to do. Now, he says, if he won't listen, then you take other steps. But first, we try to settle it between each other, one-on-one. -on -one. And regain our brothers, our sisters, speaking the truth in love. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that these things, that we use our gifts in this way? Because Christ is our head. We are his body. 
That's exactly what he says. We want to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. What does a healthy body look like? And I think verse 16 is just a good summary of that. Verse 16, he says, From whom the whole body, the whole body, every member, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. He speaks of the whole body. He says every joint Every part doing its share. That's how the body will be healthy and built up in Christ. Friends, I want you to get this. Every Christian. Emphasis, every. Every Christian is a gift from Jesus to the church for its edification. I've called you saints and now I'm telling you you're God's gift to the church. (laughs) Y'all are going to walk out of here with big heads. Every Christian is a gift from Jesus to the church for its edification. God gave you. Now, that doesn't give you any reason for pride because you would be nothing apart from him. But God has given each one of you a gift. And he's given you as a gift to the church so that you can have a vital part in building up the body. Even if you don't think your part is very important. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I feel like all I can do is pray. By golly, that's the best thing you can do. I I would actually like more of you to to pray for me. Because I know that it's through prayer that God works in power. So whatever it is that you can do, whatever it is God has gifted you to do, friend, by all means... For Christ's name and for the sake of the church, do it to build up the body. Now, every Christian is a gift from Jesus to the church for its edification. So let me leave you with this question. Are you living like that? Are you living like it? Because you're you're probably functioning in one of three ways. There are Christians who are just kind of dead weight in the church. And what I mean by this is the people who they're not building up and they're not being intentionally destructive, but they're just sort of coasting along on the labors of everyone else around them. They don't really have any concern for activity in the church. There's no concern for participation in the work of God. They're just going to come to church and enjoy the benefits of what everybody else is doing and go home when they're done. Don't be that kind of Christian. Unfortunately, there are those sometimes who are actively destructive. We're talking about building up the body, but whenever sin creeps in, what does it do? It does the opposite. It tears it down. Maybe somebody who who perhaps is a Christian and they're in the body of Christ, but maybe are behaving sinfully in their interactions with other Christians. Don't be that kind of Christian. But we want to be Christians who build up the body. In whatever way God has gifted you, whether seemingly big or small, in the sight of others or behind the scenes, whatever it is, doing your part for the sake of the body's health. That's God's calling on each one of you as members of his body in the church. Let's just have a time of prayer. Would you bow your heads?
Examine yourself. Ask the Lord to examine you, to show you where you truly stand in your relationship to him and in your relationship to the church. Are you doing your part in walking with Christ to be mature and holy and actively building up this body in whatever way God has gifted you? I'm going to pray and then Laura will come and play for a minute while we continue in quiet prayer. Father, I pray for your church. It is your church. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to anyone in this room. It's your church. We just want to be faithful to do exactly what you've gifted us and called us to do. And I pray that you would bring to each mind, Lord, what your will is. If there's sin, root it out. If there's indifference or apathy, give a burden. If there's faithfulness and an active building of the body, give encouragement and strength. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.